Welcome to the Soccer Metrics Podcast, a discussion and interview series with leading names in the soccer analytics world. Here's your host, the founder of Soccer Metrics, Howard Hamilton. Welcome to episode number eight of the Soccer Metrics Podcast for the 10th of January 2014. Soccer Metrics Podcast is an information interview series with leading figures from the soccer analytics world, with occasional forays into the broader worlds of football business and sports analytics. This is the first episode of 2014, and we at Soccer Metrics wish you a healthy, productive, and successful new year, a World Cup year at that. In this episode, I am pleased to have on the show Zach Slayton. Zach has been the proprietor of a soccer analytics blog called A Beautiful Numbers Game, and from there he joined Forbes.com as a regular columnist on statistical analysis topics related to football. Zach, Happy New Year, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining me. No problem. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Happy New Year to you, too. So, Zach, could you talk a little bit about your background and your current job? Yeah, actually, um, uh, write for Forbes uh, mainly. Um, I also write for Howler Magazine, and in the past I've written for Blizzard. Uh, It's been about, um, let's see now, about four years since I started writing about soccer analytics or uh, statistical analysis as well. Half the time it's not even really into analytics, it's just... Uh, exploring the game through numbers, uh, and, and I'd say it's it's been an interesting journey to try and get me up to speed about a very uh, and still know a lot writing about it. Uh, so uh, th- that's the main reason I I started doing this was I have a, a background in engineering and statistical theory. Uh, also have a Six Sigma certification uh, from one of my employers that, that I worked for. And my day job is an engineer uh, working for a transportation company in the trucking industry. So uh, I use numbers a lot to try and understand that world. And when I fell in love with soccer about four and a half, five years ago, I tried to use numbers as a way to get up to speed relatively quickly and uh, wanted to exchange ideas. So I started my blog. Uh, as a blogger format, and then about two years into that, got picked up by Forbes. Uh, So I'm coming up on my second anniversary working for them. Uh, And for me, it's just an exploration of the game uh, to get up to speed relatively quickly that happened kind of at the right time because numbers, at least in the public domain, numbers have have been taking uh, increasing importance uh, within the discussion of the game, the coverage of the game of of soccer or football, depending on where you're at in the world. And uh, so I kind of got lucky there uh, and um, in writing about it over the last four or five years and been meeting wonderful people like yourself along the way. So uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on here and talk about uh, uh, what we may have learned over the last year or so uh, about the game uh, through numbers or uh, numbers related stories. That's great. Uh, And one of your contributions to the football analytics community has been the creation of a transfer price index for English football. Could you talk about that a bit? Yeah, uh, I, I would never claim that I actually created it. Uh, I actually came across it uh, just as they were getting ready to publish a book about it. It's put together by a couple of guys over in the UK. Um, one is Graham Riley. He maintains the actual database of all of the transfers of the English Premier League going back to 1992 uh, when the Premier League was started, as well as uh, lower leagues, because one of the tricky aspects of this is what happens when you have a promoted team that comes into the league and how do you account for their history of the valuation of players. So Graham and Paul, uh, probably probably about four and a half, five years ago now, um, got together. Graham had had the database. Paul runs the uh, Tompkins Times, which is a Liverpool-centric blog out of the... Uh, out 
and said, what could we learn about the increasing role that transfers have played in the last, you know, 20 years of English soccer? Uh, and, and a proxy for that is the valuation. Now, anybody who studies the game knows that a lot of players are overvalued or undervalued. Um, but there are macro level trends that you can see that go on uh, with player valuations, where they concentrate and how teams do in the table, what kind of those thresholds are that you need to fight for that top four or five pos uh, position in the league table versus scrapping it out in that middle to lower middle portion of the table to avoid relegation. Um, so those guys had put something together. They had written uh, Pay As You Play, which was a book that they released in 2010, uh, the fall of 2010. And I happened to get hooked up with Paul at the time. And my main contribution is to bring, um, I think, a little bit of a deeper statistical background to the numbers to build models on that aggregate data to not only predict long-term what you need to spend, kind of like a Socronomics um, uh, Stefan Szymanski kind of wage model, but to also talk about things like um, what happens at the macro level over a season where you have large effects from player valuation and wages and transfers playing in there, um, but also at the micro level, uh, how much does that wage or um, uh, transfer bill contribute to an individual match versus the randomness and that's why we watch the game right because we know manchester city manchester united maybe not this year but in years past chelsea arsenal uh, the likes of those teams liverpool are always going to fight for the top spots on the table but the random behavior in an individual match um makes it exciting to see a team like qpr last season or i guess two seasons ago take on uh, manchester city and take them all the way down to the wire for that title uh, and so we can quantify how little effect actually within an individual match or a much lesser effect in an individual match uh, transfer fees play. Um, but I think one of the big contributions that, that that group and I have been able to make is to understand that it's not just wages, it's also transfer fees that you have to pay. How much do you have to pay and how much do they actually contribute to the game itself? Uh, this, the failure of a team inside the league table. You're based in Seattle. Um, so what do you make of the use of data by Major League Soccer teams? Has it progressed in the manner that you expected? Um, I, I think it, as what I would expect it, yes. Um, not as much as I'd like to uh, have seen it. I think in a cash-strapped, salary-capped league, especially one with such distortive effects as up to three designated players who can be paid any amount of money, um, it, 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 I would have liked to have seen it progress maybe even a little bit more here uh, than it has overseas because I think what it can... Kind of lost you for a second. Oh, there you are. I, I understand that it's somewhat limited because the payroll is more limited here. The resources are more limited here than the English Premier League. Um, but, you know, if you look at the NFL, if you look at, you know, some other salary capped leagues where resources really don't dominate, it's, it's, it's really about how you use those resources. MLS tries to follow that model a little bit. Um, progress maybe a little bit further at this point. I do like, you know, being in the Seattle area, Robbie being one of our common friends, seeing him get hired at the Sounders um, and knowing what other teams are doing. They are making progress. And it's good to see people like Ravi who have a passion for soccer, have passion for numbers, have passion for learning through those numbers come from, um, you know, a non-traditional background. I mean, he's a fan of the game, um, never played it professionally, right? And and certainly is, has worked his way into that organization to be a contributor. Uh, so that's encouraging. But I, I think it, 
I think it's progressed as far as we might expect, but maybe not as much as we'd like to have seen it progress so far. We're going to chat a bit more about the role of analytics in soccer in 2014. But before we do that, I want to take a look at what happened in the soccer analytics world during 2013. The highlights and the lowlights, the events, developments, and storylines of the last 12 months. So Zach and I created our own lists of what we thought were the big stories. And we asked our followers on social media for their stories as well. So what we're going to do is we'll select a topic from our respective lists and we'll discuss them until we're, until we're done. So I'm going to let the guest start us off. So Zach, uh, what was your first storyline of 2013? I think one of the big ones that I enjoyed was the acknowledgement of how much unquantifiable behavior, random behavior, luck, whatever you want to call it, uh, is still out there in the game. And it's not to say that it's purely random behavior that we could never quantify, but maybe it's something we just don't understand well enough yet to quantify. Um, I think back to uh, James Grayson, who's a great author that everybody out there, if you don't already follow him, should. Uh, his posts are great because they talk about high-level statistics um, that you can look at that matter, but also in almost every single post he talks about uh, how much luck plays in the in this individual statistic or how long it takes throughout a season, how many matches does it take to understand uh, whether what you're observing is purely random behavior or an actual uh, variation in uh, TSR or PDO or any of the other three-letter acronyms. And, and I liked this uh, quantification because it's key to understanding what we know today and acknowledging and admitting what we don't know today uh, and it provides you an opportunity to understand where we should continue to research, right? Uh, because the whole point of this field is, is nobody's ever going to get the right answer. Uh, we're just going to continuously evolve the conversation and deepen our understanding of the game. And, and I go back to one real moment for me that kind of solidified this, because I think bloggers are key to this, but I think the uh, getting across that threshold of acknowledging random behavior in, in published uh, the commitment of a published uh, work uh, is key because it means that not only do we bloggers and we analytics people believe it, but a publisher believes it and feels it's really valid. And for me, it was the number was great in many regards. But to me, the fact that they came out of the gate and talked about the random behavior of the game and how much it impacts soccer more than any other sport and how that has uh, both limitations and I think benefits for analytics in this sport was really key. So I think it was a culmination throughout the year, and by mid-year you had the numbers game come out, and it just kind of continued from there, acknowledging uh, how much random behavior there is and kind of tempering uh, a, a good reminder to us analysts to temper a lot of our analysis and, and acknowledge uh, what's unquantifiable and, and what we may not be able to capture in our models. I thought that was a really important finding as well because um, just a big part of statistical modeling is you know, handling uncertainty and I don't think we I don't think people as a community were really open about um, the level of uncertainty there was in calculations that, that we were doing so I think it was really great for uh, Chris Anderson and David Sally to bring that into the open and make people feel comfortable about the idea of um, of the idea that you know, our our estimates and assessments of team and player performance are uncertain, and that's okay. 
And I think that's pure genius on many people's part, because if you think about the biggest criticism analysts face, right? Analytics, the first thing they were... The game is too random. You can't possibly quantify it. There's, it, it, it's, it, You're selling the beautiful game when you try to take the beauty out of it that's unquantifiable. And so a lot of times analysts are pushing back against that perception. So to have a number of analysts come out and say, you know what, you're right. There's a portion of this that we don't understand yet or we're uncertain about in our models or, or uh, maybe is completely unquantifiable, uh, as, as in, in some regards what Chris and, and David argue in their book. To have to have us kind of grow as a as a community and be able to acknowledge that and embrace it and talk about it um, and accept it as a reality, I think was a was a was a one of those key grow continually growing moments inside the field in 2014. So, I, I, in face of that, often just throwing out their criticism, I think it was beautiful uh, to have a lot, number of analysts say, you know what, in some regards, you guys are right. You you non-analytics people are right. Yeah. Um, so moving on to to my first storyline. Of, of 2013, I think the, I think the issue of, I think the matter of Opta becoming the 800 pound gorilla or a 800 kilo gorilla, depending on where you live, is a big issue. Um, they won the data contract with uh, the rest of the UK league, so now they're not only the official data supplier of the Premier League, but they're also the data supplier for the football league and the Scottish Professional Leagues. Um, their acquisition by Perform Media for well over $50 million US um, and earning or winning a, an exclusive betting data contract. Um, they've set themselves up as a really big player in, in, data, surrounding the, in data surrounding the game. Now, by winning the data contract with the UK Leagues, it also puts them under jurisdiction of Football Data Co., um, which has also introduced a number of, of problems with, um, you know, with, um, with access to data, especially in the UK. And we'll, uh, I'll bring it up in my next storyline of 2013. But um, Opta, I think the matter of Opta, um, of Opta continuing contracts in the UK, and they've also won contracts contracts in Europe as well. Uh, they're the official data supplier of the Dutch Eredivisie. Um, they have contracts in Italy. They won a contract with um, with the Brazilian national team. Um, they're really starting to become a major player, and I think that um, they're in position to become um, a, a lot more dominant as far as the um, the collection of data in the sport and the dissemination of data in the sport. I think I think this is a, a really good storyline, uh, as you brought up, because uh, I will say that I think there's a lot of pluses and minuses to it. It's going to have a lot of little storylines that go out from it, not only over last year and, and this year, but into the future. Uh, one of the things that I find very interesting about this is that you know you and I see a lot of the chatter online behind the scenes with different data companies and. Um, one of the challenges when you get to any measurement system is how you define events and how you compare data across two different data collection companies in defining events or comparing between leagues, which is what a lot of us um, want to be able to do as well. Uh, comparing data between leagues can be heavily dependent upon who collects the data, what company collects it, what do they consider, uh, you know, uh, 
any type of event. Uh, you know, shot, there are some def definitions from the soccer leagues themselves, but how do you classify certain passes? What's a clear-cut chance? Um, some of these subjective things that aren't just uh, what's an own goal. Um, how do you define an own goal? Well, that's pretty standard, but when you get into these more, I'd say, data-created um, uh, events like clear-cut chances, you can have disagreements between different data companies. And so I think there's definitely some pluses and minuses. One of them would be uh, possibly some increased standardization for, with Opta getting data from multiple leagues and providing it to the multiple leagues now. I think you bring up a really great point because Opta has, Opta has framed themselves as a data collector whose primary market, I think a lot of people forget, but Opta's primary markets are media and betting. And professional services came on, as, I wouldn't say as an afterthought, but a number of professional teams realized, hey, there's this company that puts out a lot of, um, a lot of finely grained data about our matches. Maybe there's something useful to that. So then a lot of teams start buying up their data, and then the professional services branch came up around it. You have Optus Sports Pro. Um, you have analysts like Devin Peeler, who are now Opta employees. Um, traditionally, they're more data collectors than data analysts, and that might show in some of their more detailed, some of the quality of more detailed analyses. I have, I have some disagreements with how they compute um, certain derived statistics, um, but they're starting to gather, you know. They're starting to gather um, personnel and expertise on the analysis side. So I think you might see them having more of a presence in not only, obviously, data collection, but also data analysis. Right, and I think that's probably also to your point about becoming the, the 800 pound or 800 kilo gorilla. You know, that, that is a, an absolutely critical service to provide because I don't, I, 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 would say that data collection is one thing, uh, and I can say this freely about speaking with the guys on the transfer price index that you brought up before, but getting the right people in the of that data in terms of a model that you can test, uh, explore, statistically quantify the importance of is a very different skill set, and I think is one of the critical things when we talk about analytics moving forward. Um, so if Opta were to, to continue to play in that growing region, I think this was something they had to do, especially since if you look at, you know, trying to pitch something to an NBC Sports who um, got into, the, you know, covering the Premier League in North America this year, um, trying to get somebody that can analyze all this data that's coming through on the minute by minute stream from from Opta is maybe less of an interest to theirs than it is to put fun little infotainment facts up there, right? So if somebody were to advance this data that Opta has, I think they can't look to somebody outside themselves. They have to look internally, which is probably why we saw some of their moves this past year as well, to continue expanding not only the data collection business, but to, as you said, move into data uh, analysis uh, and a provider of, of actual uh, processed data as analytics to, to teams or uh, other markets. Okay, so that was my storyline. Um, what's your next storyline of 2013? Uh, so a lot of my storylines are going to be about the, the public discussion, I think. And uh, one of the things that I liked uh, this year uh, was the increasing availability by public analysts of shot location and pass location data 
especially in the final third of the the pitch. Um, you know, we've grown acceptance of possession stats don't matter. It matters where possession occurs and how quickly you recover possession. Uh, and, and what we're also finding now clearly is that, you know, we can begin to understand what really matters, where shots and passes come from in the final third. Uh, and so one of the things that I've seen is guys like Colin Trainer bring this up, uh, people like the American Soccer Analyst bring this up, where you're publishing visual graphics right around the 18-yard, you know, six-yard box, those kinds of things, to show fans where shots matter, what the relative percentage of those shots uh, going in are like, and where teams are taking their shots from. Are they taking them from high percentage areas? Are they making passes into the final third? You know, one, one reader or one follower of ours talked about assists and how do we move beyond the assist statistic because the assist is inherently biased towards the success of a goal. So if you don't have a, a player following up that can score a lot of goals off your passes, it doesn't matter how many good passes you make because you won't show up in the assist column. Well, one of these things that we're seeing now is passes in the final third, passes to players' feet that are in you know the six-yard box, in positions that can score uh, high-frequency scoring opportunities, uh, and, and those that are not. And we're beginning to see that public discussion happen now. Now, am I sure this has been going on in clubs for some time? Probably yes. But most of us aren't privy to what those clubs are looking at. And so I think these analysts that are going out there and getting on the web uh, from various data sources and trying to help us all learn about the value or the lack of value of passes into certain positions and shots taken from certain positions uh, are, are good. Now, and I follow up with one of the, the biggest examples I've seen in the last week or two was this article that popped up on Wired UK that a lot of people pointed to. Um, and, you know, ProZone has their, their statistics about expected goal differential or, or expected goals uh, that you can get. And they talked about how um, that shot that won Manchester City their title two years ago um, was taken um, actually on a second look. And the first look could have occurred in a position where the, the, the shot would have been, I think it was half or maybe even a third as likely to go in just from the average shot uh, uh, taken in that position. And instead, the ball was advanced further forward. Higher percentage of going in. Scores are supposed to do. But I think quantifying this helps us understand what good and bad teams do. Or what bad teams have a tougher time doing. Right. And I think that's um, probably the biggest benefit of analytics. Not necessarily additional knowledge to teams who might have that information already. And sometimes I kind of doubt that, but I'll just give them the benefit of argument um, just by just that, just agreeing with them that, yeah, they know that stuff already. I think the biggest benefit of analytics is a better informed public about about the game. Um, you know, why do teams, why do successful teams take certain shots from different locations, or what is the difference between shot taking between successful teams and unsuccessful teams, or um, which teams are actually better passers in the final third in the final third of the pitch. Um, we all know of teams that tend to run out of ideas when they get close to the penalty area. And what separates those teams from teams that 
actually know how to create goal scoring chances. Um, I, I agree with you. I think that's a really big deal. Well, so I've talked about two of mine so far. I guess what's your second one, uh, second biggest storyline that you saw in 2013? I think the second biggest storyline was the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference uh, soccer analytics panel and the fallout from that. Um, I think the the panel in 2012 was widely criticized for being content-free. Um, and I think there was some hope that um, that the panel would that the panel would be an improvement on on two thousand on two thousand twelve and some aspect it was I think the fact that Chris Anderson was on it was was a huge positive um, but I felt and a number of other people felt that um, you just had a bunch of insiders talking about generalities talking about how difficult it is to get data. Um, you know, people talked about secret sauce, people talked about secret sauce that everyone supposedly had. Um, and there's a lot of, there was still a fair amount of dissatisfaction about the panel. Um, Mitch Lasky, um, he's a friend of ours. He's a venture capitalist at Benchmark Capital. Um, uh, he's also a massive soccer fan, wrote a really scathing piece on the soccer analytics panel. And he basically said that if, if the panel is just going to have a bunch of insiders who are going to talk about, are going to talk about really bland generalities and, you know, refuse to get into specifics, um, you might as well not even have a soccer analytics panel. Just open it up to bloggers, open up the bloggers, you know, force people to have opinion, um, get people to talk about you know why it is that um, that the soccer analytics community has not been able to make the kind of progress that the basketball analytics community, just to give one example, has made. And they've been they've had positional data for probably half the time that the soccer analytics community has had it. Um, and that that was really I felt that. Articles like Mitch's serve as a warning shot to the soccer analytics community. I think, I think they were communicating that yes, there is interest in what there is interest in analytics um, by the broader public and by decision makers, but that interest isn't going to last very long if, um, you know, if we're not. If we're if we're not imaginative enough or sophisticated enough to make sense of uh, all the data that's being used, and also if uh, if um, you know, if we fail to communicate to the public that there's more to the eye than just um, um, than just really superficial uh, superficial uh, summaries of events, you know, based on um, you know, based on granular data or you know technical tactical data or things like that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I was uh, equally harsh. Well, I wouldn't say equally harsh. I think Mitch was a little harsher than me. But I, I had a, I walked away with a very similar impression um, of last year's conference. I was personally excited to see Chris up there. Uh, having somebody like Albert up there, I thought, would help a little bit. Um, and, and again, I would agree with you. I think that I, I do think we're at risk in that forum of 
not um, giving any kind of meat uh, to the people that are there to watch it. I mean, it's reasonably, the soccer analytics panel is reasonably well attended the last two uh, conferences that I've been able to attend. I think it's been one of the best attended panels at the conference, but, probably uh, in, in the top two or three. And I, I would, yeah, I would, based upon my memory, I, I, I would kind of agree with you there. And I think the challenge is that we need, I, I wrote the column afterwards that I said, we need a football outsiders kind of person up there to really, for lack of a better term, take on, uh, if you're going to put insiders up there, have them get taken on by people that say, now, come on, now, you know, here's some data that I can actually present or I can talk about. And, and let's actually have a discussion around it in the public forum um, that talks about, why teams are good or why teams are, are suffering. I mean, I threw out probably about, I think, 10 topics in my post Sloan 2013 write-up to say, even if you give, give these three topics, give three or four of these topics to the panelists before, uh, you know, two or three weeks before the conference and have them come prepared to discuss this with data and show people how publicly available data, forget the clubs, publicly available data can lead to a very good discussion about the value of certain players, certain systems, um, teams, whatever, style of play, and, and, and have that discussion around it. Because I think you're right. It's, it's, it's so content-free that there's no real discussion uh, on about how to help people learn about this game. Because I also think, personally, um, I had one person come up to me and jokingly say after that, that panel was almost as boring as a sport. Right, and, and that's what you're battling against, I think, when you go to Sloan, is you still have a lot of the American public that doesn't care about soccer. But when you can break it down, and, and part of the reason I don't think they care about a so soccer as much is because it is, it's a hard sport to learn because there is a lot of movement on the pitch. Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, there's, there's less scoring. Um, there's less scoring opportunities. And there's less stoppage of play for in-game analysis. So I think the analytics community can pr provide a very good um, resource for continuing to grow the sport in this country, especially at what is supposed to be, as I coined, the Super Bowl of analytics at Sloan. Uh, and, and if Sloan would, I think, get a little a better panel um, of more outsiders. And, and provide a, a little bit more structure to answer some key questions with up on those giant screens that they've got and some people sitting in the audience there weren't huge soccer fans and to learn about the sport is the impression I got and I think they missed a big opportunity there okay uh, what's your next storyline of 2013 um, well let's let's <laughs> I don't hate to be so negative but I, I'd like to keep going with the one of my lowlights which was um, I think there's a lot of great work going on in print media uh, whether uh, you want to say online or in physical print media, uh, there's a lot of good bloggers, writers, analysts out there putting a lot of good information out and helping us understand the game. Um, one of my favorite lay magazines um, that's not extremely, let's say, analytical by bent, but does incorporate it in well for other sports is ESPN the magazine. I love their write-ups. One of my lowlights, however, is the continued challenge that we have in broadcast journalism. Um, the majority of fans, as I brought up about Sloan, are interacting with this sport in America as it grows based upon broadcasts. And I'd like to see more of these, uh, if we go back to sh uh, maps, uh, scoring, uh, passives, TSR uh, is a good, even just a general TSR model, uh, total, total shots ratio model. 
if you can show that on the screen and talk about two teams that are playing, and Lord knows that NBC or anybody else has tons of video to link up with that, you can make this game, um, I think, uh, for a certain subset, uh, more attractive because they like numbers, more understandable because they even when you see video, understanding why that movement is important to the success or failure of a team, that movement of that player, that final pass, uh, that ball recovery, uh, that shot that's taken from a certain angle uh, or a certain distance, uh, maybe a defender's position is, is important. If you can show with numbers why, um, I think it makes the video even more understandable. And I just have not seen enough of that this year. And the fact that the bloggers and, and a lot of people have had this, these types of data for two, three years, um, I think you could incorporate that. Now, why, I don't know. I mean, I know that there's this bias that they think that there's um, a lot of fans out there that won't consume that kind of information. It's too intense for a 15 or 30 second vignette. Um, but I see the table. <laughs> I see the table. Uh, show last three or four games I see possession stats I see all this other data that they put up there that's taking up valuable space and I'm not saying you got to displace all of it but I would like to see the likes of uh, you know NBC ESPN when they do get their broadcast putting more and more analytics into them and I didn't see enough of that this year so that was probably one of my uh, my lower points of the year that I'd hope to uh, see uh, maybe rectified in 2014 and beyond yeah, that gets to an interesting point. I think that touches on something that Mitch Lasky wrote in his critical piece of the, of the Soccer Analytics panel, is that um, there's really not there's really not a um, much of a game model game model in the soccer analytics soccer analytics community that gives a framework to data that is coming that's coming into the match so that we have an understanding of how teams are doing, how well teams are doing, how well they're not doing. Um, you see it in football, you see it in basketball. Obviously, they're very different sports, although basketball has some parallels to, to soccer. But I, I think one of the reasons why you don't see analytics like that is that, um, is that the analytics community hasn't really developed them yet. And I think, you know, there are challenges, obviously, the nature of the game. But, you know, they're not – I think it's less of a data challenge and more of an issue of making sense of, of the complexity and the granularity of the data that, that we're seeing. And I think very, very few people taking a look at it. I, I think there's, there was some promise with the um, – there was some promise with some of the networked models um i think there's some work going on chimu sports chimu solutions um kick deck kit decks and some other companies um sarah rudd obviously made some really great analysis before she joined uh, stat dna um but converting those types of analyses to something that can be accessible to the public is a really is a really big challenge and i don't think anyone has really been able to um, has been able to conquer that challenge. Um, you know, wh why don't we see anything like a QBR type rating, like you know, similar to the one that ESPN created? Um, I, obviously, there are some reasons. One, you, know, you can't really isolate a position 
in soccer the same way you, you can in American football. But the idea of having a game model that incorporates data coming into the match and um, giving some sort of measure of, of performance um, that's successful to people. Um, I don't think we in the soccer analytics community ha um, has done that, and hopefully we'll make a lot more progress toward that in 2014. Let me, let me ask you a follow-up question on that, because somebody else suggested this, and we, we put out our feelers for what they'd like to hear about, and I kind of agree with it, which is how much do you think the game state um, discussions that have gone online, how much further do they have to go before they can start providing context in a broadcast? Because that seems like one of the easier things to understand is pressing versus shelling teams based on game states. Yeah, you know, now I think about it, game state's actually a, a really good one. Um, you know, I think what teams do at what teams do at a certain score line, you know, if a certain amount of minutes to go, is very different from what they do, you know, what's nil nil fifteen minutes in. Um, I think that would be interesting. I think something that would be even more interesting is the use of tempo. Um, and expressing game events in the context of tempo as far as shots uh, shots are being taken when a certain team is playing at a certain level of possession speed um, the tempo at which they're forced to play by by opposing team um, how it varies over the course of a match um, I wouldn't say that's in its, in its infancy I've done some work on that this year but um, being able to express that over, being able to express that as a function of of match time and incorporate match state and um, and also the events that individual events that occur within the match, um, you know, we haven't done we haven't done work like that yet. But that's another thing that we hope to accomplish in two thousand fourteen. Well, and that reminds me, actually, I think that's really good data to have. I was um, reading over the last week an article by Simon Cooper about some of the, the ground rules as he saw them for Barcelona's success. And a lot of that is tempo-based and how do you respond to losing the ball. And, and, and then if you don't recover it in the first, I think it was five seconds, um, what do you do after that point? And, and a lot of that is, you know, what he's writing in words is going to come out in tempo-based statistics. So I think that's, a, to your point, a very key learning that we could we could grow upon in 2014 if it, it's explored further. Right. Okay. Um, my next storyline of 2013, and this, this is a narrow light, um, is the issue of unpaid performance out performance analysis positions. Um, there were a couple of ads in the UK in, I believe, Mart I believe April or May um, by a couple of clubs. I know Reading was one of them. Um, there was another Premier League club, or there was a Premier League club that, um, um, that also posted an ad. And if I remember correctly, I don't have the ad in front of me, they were looking for... Um, they were looking for a recent graduate in sports science. Um, you know, the cherry on top of this ad was that the graduate had to, or at least it was preferred that the graduate have a master's degree in sports science. Um, they were required to attend all matches of a particular team home and away. 
They would be responsible for travel. They would work ungodly hours doing video analysis and other tasks um, designated important by the club. Um, again, they were not compensated for travel, and there would be no pay. And there was an instant furor in the there was an instant furor in the performance um, analysis community. Uh, made all the big papers in the UK. Uh, within two or three days, it was removed from the UK sport website. Um, and I consider that to be a really I consider it to be a really good thing, but I thought that ad was really telling because it showed the attitude that professional football clubs, even even Premier League clubs, and we're talking the richest soccer league in the world, the attitude that clubs like those have toward um, people in the performance analysis community and also toward the analytics movement in particular. Um, and the attitude is that they really don't see a whole lot of value to it because if they did see a lot of value to it, they would be paying those people for for those services. And also, it it also brought the point home loud and clear to people like me who was trying who were trying to establish a business from it that one you're always competing against free, and two, you're trying to sell services to people who to people and organizations who may not be willing to pay for your service. And um, I thought that that was a major development. But I did one one silver lining to that was that I got the impression that um, that graduates and analysts in the community were no longer willing to to tolerate being um, I guess being taken advantage of or not being compensated for the long hours of work that they do on behalf of a football club. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't believe that ad when I saw it come out and, and uh, the reaction it got was very swift uh, to your point. I think it was, I think it was a, a watershed moment where people are just, we've known this for some time um, that it's not going to be the best paying field. Uh, but that seemed to have an audacity about it, which was you'll be lucky to work with a, no offense, a, a, a team in the bottom end of the Premier League, um, which is going to be a tough assignment to begin with. And you're going to have this huge benefit of working with us and we're not going to pay you. And in fact, you're going to pay us effectively because you're going to pay for all your transportation. And, and it was good to see the reaction of not just the analytics community, but a number of soccer writers who said this is absolutely shameful. Um, you know, somebody myself who has a technical background, um, I've been very blessed in my life uh, to have opportunities because of that. Um, I cannot conceive, and I have a master's degree myself, I cannot conceive of having worked in such a highly technical job to contribute something of real value to an organization, theoretically, and then be told, yeah, you're going to work for free. Um, th th that was, it, it was good to see the reaction that went on with it, um, that the club was shamed. Um, a number of people were shamed about it. Uh, and, and, but I agree with you, Howard. I mean, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you that, um, to me, I was nowhere near, um, uh, I think invested in this as you were. Uh, I, I do this as a part-time excursion in the evenings on the weekends. It's a personal interest of mine. I happen to be lucky enough to get paid for it, but I've had my own points online where I've said, you know, I've had people steal my material left and right, reposted on websites all around the world, uh, my Forbes material. 
and it's hard to make a living in a field like this. Um, and I'm not even trying to. So that's why I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm not trying to sow a, a tale of woe. It's more a lot of sympathy that I get frustrated just doing this on my own, having my work, you know, taken. And somebody like yourself or this performance analyst that's eventually going to take this position, this is their bread and butter. They're trying to make a living doing this. So um, it was good to see that reaction. And, and these people are valued. And I think organizations that are smart, like we've seen with uh, some of the Chelsea's and Manchester cities in the world, uh, there was a big announcement um, you know how deep this goes with Jason Christ's hiring at New York City FC. But they made a big splash about not only announcing him, but a, a performance analyst position that they uh, filled as well. Um, so I think organizations that know the value of these people are trying to figure out how to make it work. But I think you're right. We still have a long way to go if you're trying to provide services to, to clubs. Um, they still aren't. There's still a number of them that aren't seeing enough value yet to pay for it. Right. Okay. So that was my storyline. Yeah. Um, I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball here. And um, I think that's something that's going to be interested for the uh, discussion of the statistical numbers driven analytical discussion of the game, at least in England, which is mainly what I write about outside of MLS, is actually the retirement. It was the ultimate dis. There's a lot of stuff that he did that we'll be able to quantify over time, but also what he was able to do at the top of the game. Um, there's been a lot of debate about Manchester United and how much of that came from their spending and how much of it came from Alex Ferguson and uh, his tactics, his uh, players that he would bring in, uh, players that he would let go of over time, um, tactics that he would employ on the pitch, and um, any good statistic. Uh, driven person knows that you kind of have to have an A and a B comparison. You have to have uh, some way to test the theory both with and without what you think is a significant factor. And so um, just from a numbers-driven discussion and our understanding of the Premier League, I actually think the retirement of Alex Ferguson uh, this offseason is actually going to be really good um, for not just the competition within the league like we've seen this year, but also uh, the numbers-driven discussion, understanding how much managers play a role, how little they may play a role, uh, and what other clubs are doing well or not. Because I think the success that he had at Manchester United made it hard sometimes to publicly see when clubs were doing things well and when they weren't because he kept winning so many darn championships. So uh, I'm just going to throw it as a, as a good thing that happened, I think, uh, in, in, in our sport for uh, – for 2014 was some of the movement we saw with Alex Ferguson, Pep uh, moving over to a lesser extent, Pep moving over to, uh, you know, Byron in this, this off season as well, seeing what those guys can do either fully retired from the game or in different situations, I think is going to be really good for our understanding of the game. I, that is, I think that's almost inspired. <laughs> and I don't mean to bar you up <laughs> just because you're my guest, but I think that, I think that storyline's almost inspired because um, I think it's it's my hope that the retirement of Alex Ferguson spurs a greater discussion in the area of manager analytics. Um, I think it's already spurred a discussion on man management of players, of management of a football club on the professional on the professional. Uh, um, on the professional sports side, um, we all know about the we know about the case study that was done by 
um, Anita Elber at uh, Harvard Business School, and he went to Harvard and taught, you know, taught a lecture there. Um, so I think there was a lot of really good discussion at the beginning of the year about his, um, his management style and the lessons learned from management. But I think in the second half of the year, and especially, this has especially become a lot more apparent with David Moyes and the challenges that he's encountered um, in charge of Manchester City. Um, I guess I would like to see some sort of measure of, um, of points above replacement manager. Uh, we hear some talk about you know, wins above replacement in baseball, obviously. Um, and Dave Leidig has done some research of, uh, you know, done some research and presents some early statistics on points above a replacement player. But I'd really like to see some work on um, how much how much points could be quantified as being earned earned from the presence of a manager. Uh, how much more. Uh, how much more points is a manager responsible for than the average manager in the league or the replacement manager in the league? Um, we, I know on, I know for our part, you know, we were taking a look at the Pythagorean estimations of the Premier League over the last two seasons, and Manchester United's Pythagorean residual was extremely high. Like they consistently overperformed their expected performance by at least by at least 10 to 15 points and um which meant two things one Manchester City probably should have won the Premier League by five or six points instead of instead of goal difference uh, at instead of goal difference in 2011-2012 and also um the league should have been a lot narrower in 2012-2013 than it actually was. And I think some of that you might want to put down to Alex Ferguson because the consensus was that um, the last two teams were not as strong as previous teams. Um, and you know, I've had informal conversations with, um, you know, with football fans and bars in their locations, and they almost to a person feel that Alex Ferguson was worth 10 points to Manchester United. Is that, you know, would an analysis bear that out? I don't know, but I think it's worth considering. I, I mean, I think what you brought up about your model, uh, we've certainly looked at it, the transfer price index and versus uh, player valuations, and, and Ferguson ranks uh, way up there, um, although he, they did have to spend a lot after, Chel after Chelsea was bought because there's just no way uh, they couldn't, um, you look at, uh, you know, to, to talk about James Grayson again, he did a great plot of TSR over the Ferguson years and showed um, pretty much once they got rid of uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and Tevez, um, they started tanking um, a consistent downward trend uh, in TSR, which is key to placing well in the league. And um, when you go through and you look at all those, uh, I mean, it, it, James Grayson and, and then uh, a few other people have made the argument that exactly what you said. Uh, essentially, uh, you, you almost feel a little bit bad for Moyes because not only is he having to follow up a guy uh, who is probably the best you know, manager in the history of England, uh, professional football at least, 
but he's also following up with a team that was probably in decline the last two or three years when it came to the keys of success, keys to success in the Premier League. And I think, you know, maybe Ferguson literally just got out at the right time that he may not even be able to work his magic this year. But I, I agree with you. We, we've tried to take a, a few um, looks at, at, the, at the transfer price index, but I do agree with you that some wins above replacement or trying to use some similar statistics that you find in other sports um, it would be really good to look at for somebody like um, Ferguson or, or Pep. And, and I will freely admit it's, it's very difficult to control for a bunch of other factors. I mean, if you're going to go look at Barcelona, you've got to look at uh, the fact that, you know, the guy who replaced Pep, um, they, had, they had a little bit of a management um, churn there because of uh, cancer treatments of their, their replacement manager. You have Messi going down to injury. You know, this season, RVP's been out a whole bunch due to injury. But it doesn't change the fact if we go back and look um, at least at, at United, as you said, they've been massively overperforming the last year or two in the league. Um, and, and there should be some way to quantify uh, Ferguson's uh, contribution to that. Right. Okay, moving on to um, my next storyline. I would say a couple of books uh, that were released this year. Um, that both um, that both dealt with different sides of the uh, soccer analytics um, of the soccer analytics spectrum, um, depending on how you look at it. One is an obvious one: the numbers game by Chris Anderson and David Sally, and the other one was a book that um, I'm not sure how much attention it got in the UK, but I don't think it received nearly as much attention as it deserved and it was the nowhere men by michael calvin and i think we all know about the numbers game and how it brought um analytics to uh to the public consciousness um how it brought football analytics to the public consciousness um it's gained wide release not just in the uk and the u.s but also throughout the rest of europe I, um, David Sally told me that um, it was it was being published in Brazil, and there's a lot of interest in Brazil um, for that book. But I think the Nowhere Men um, talks about the world of football scouts and how that world is being threatened by the growth by the growth of analytics, and it's it would have been really easy to write that book as a scouts versus versus analysts or scouts versus geeks kind of argument um but michael calvin didn't do that i think he you know i i think it was clear there are certain characters in the alex movement who he doesn't really care much much for um and i'll leave it to i'll leave it to you to read the book and also listen to my interview of michael calvin in the podcast um as but, any good podcaster would do, by the way. Yes, yes, of course. But I think that was, I, I, I do have to say, it, that interview with Michael Calvin was my favorite podcast that I've done so far. Um, uh, we could have spoken for two hours if, um, if we wanted to. Um, but what, what I liked about it is that when you, when you read a book, you think that it's really hostile to, to, um, to the football analysts, um, because it frames, you know, it frames the world of football scouts 
I wouldn't say a romantic way, but you're looking at people who are observing are observing young men to see if they can become professional players. And they're observing young men before they become stars, before they become established names in in the football world. And there's there's a real sense of accomplishment to identifying you know, being the first person to identify, say, a Stan Collymore or a Lionel Messi or um, or uh, Mesut Ozil, uh, for example. Um, but what um, I think the big takeaway that I got from that book was here you have a bunch of men, and yes, they are almost all men, who who carry out a job that is acknowledged and recognized by the football community to be essential to their operations. And these are people who are probably getting paid at maximum 100 pounds a week. And if they're lucky, they're being, they're being compensated for travel. And you know, if, if, if guys like those are being compensated so little for, for the work that they do that everyone recognizes is important, then how in the world do we in the analytics community expect to be compensated for the work that we do? Knowing that, you know, there are people who spent, you know, some of us have spent tens of thousands of dollars to get the training that, you know, that we need in order to do some of the work that we do. Um, and that's a big point. And Michael Calvin, um, you know, said that, you know, football is a sport that is really brutal to to the ones who love it, you know, to the ones who work in it. And it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's a really great book. It's really bracing in, in parts. Um, I think it'll, I think if you're in the analytics community, it'll challenge you in some places. But I know he's not, but if you listen to him talk, if you listen to, if you listen to the podcast interview, if you listen to his interviews on Talk Sports, he's not hostile to the analytics world. But he does want us to think about, um, he does want he does wants to think about some of the things that we're doing, um, and also re- recognize that there are things that we can learn from uh, from the scouting community. There are some things that they might be able to learn from us. It doesn't have to be either or. And um, I thought that they were both really great books um, handling different sides of the analytics community. Well, I have a confession to make. I have not read that book. It's been on my to-read list probably for about nine months or six months now. It's, it's a little hard to get in the USA. Um, the book that I have was actually a book that I bought when I was in Britain. Um, I... I I was in Britain for the Leaders um, Sports Summit, and one of the first things I did when I got to my hotel and set my bags down is I walked across the street to the bookstore and purchased a hard co- hardcover copy of the book. Okay. So, so it, it's, next trip, I have to go pick one up then. Yeah, you, you absolutely have to do it. I mean, you might even call Cal. You might even call Michael. <laughs> Okay. Well, but I think what his, I think to your point, his story is key because if you listen to anybody who is involved. Um, you know, whether it's at Sloan or in, through interviews, whatever medium you're using to talk to these people, you know, it, it needs to be a, 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 it's not an either or, it's an and proposition for analytics uh, users 
um, you know, the, the holy grail of this, when you talk to some of these people that are at clubs that have really embraced this, uh, are you use the analytics to help funnel, just talk about player recruitment, which is what most scouts are doing, right? You use the analytics to funnel through the tens of thousands of players that are out there based upon where, what you need on your team. But you're never, it's not like, it's just like a car. You're never going to go buy a car without taking it for a test drive or at least going and looking at it on the lot, right? Um, no matter what specs you've looked at, no matter what decision-making tools you made about what the best car is for you personally. So in a similar vein, uh, because it is a business, it involves transactions of individuals uh, through transfer fees, these clubs are never going to get rid of scouts. So you're going to always have scouts um, that need to see these players firsthand. And it may start with that scout watching tape and then going to see them firsthand in a stadium. And that scout should be backed up with analytical data. And the scout should be able to read the analytical data in the best situation, right? Um, so I think in many regards, I'm, I'm excited to read the book because I'm interested in what this guy's views are. Uh, but it doesn't surprise me because it, there is the analytics community, if it for some reason, if you believe, if you're a member of the analytics community and you believe that scouts have nothing to contribute, I, I suggest that you, you need to really seriously reevaluate that because nobody's ever going to make a decision based on numbers alone. Just like we in the analytics community have been arguing that you shouldn't just Even if it's just to back up your your preconceived notion about the player, if that's what the data ends up doing, or maybe, you know, uh, cautions you against making a poor personnel decision. So um, I, that sounds like a very interesting book. And, and if I can make one plug on on the numbers game, I think the reason it works so well, no matter what culture you're in, is it's so infinitely readable from even a reasonably casual fan's observation. Um, it, it is. I've heard some people criticize it that are really deep into the stats. They're building really detailed models and saying, I didn't learn anything about the game that I didn't already know. And my it's response not written, is, it's not written for, not you. for you. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so that's why I think it's so successful is it's written for the fan that may have a, a scratch on the surface, maybe um, just a, a mild understanding of the numbers um, numbers in general, let alone maybe no understanding of numbers of the game. And, that, and that's why I think it works no matter what language it comes out in. So kudos, I, I really can't say enough kudos to those two guys because I think they figured out a way to, to really talk to a wider community, and, and that's always a good thing. Yeah, and I think it was an offset of Chris Anderson's blog because um, one of the things I was envious with, envious about his blog was that he, um, he made it... Um, he wrote his posts in a way that were understandable to the general public. Obviously, he was, he was, he writes about different things than what I write about. I tend to write a little bit more esoterically, I guess. But um, I think his content is a lot less intimidating to the general public, and he writes in a style that is, you know, it's very understandable. He's an academic. He comes from an academic background. You know, so do I. But I think he's, you know, and I think it also comes with working the social sciences. He he writes a, he writes in a style that is very accessible to a lot of people, and I'm not surprised that he would write a book in the same manner. Um, one one other point about Nowhere Men before we go to your next storyline. I think the probably the the part of the nowhere man that got the widest area that got the widest amount of of coverage was a description of the war room in um at everton football club when david moyes was the manager there where you had um you had this room 
that was closed off to players. Um, you know, there were very few personnel who were allowed in that room. Um, and you basically had whiteboards um, with, um, with projected players, at least, uh, I think the number was at least 100 or 200 projected players in different positions, you know, written with different colors of, uh, different colors of marker. You had projected uh, first team lineups, not just for the current season, but also two or three seasons out, so that so that the management, uh, so that the coaching staff would have an idea of which players would most likely be in the lineup and which players need to be replaced one season, two season, three seasons out. Um, as Michael Calvin described it. That whiteboard, that mind map, if you if you will, was the result of eleven years of work by David Moyes, eleven years of experience working at Everton Football Club. So the idea that David Moyes could leave Everton at the end of the season and you know parachute himself into Manchester United and basically basically transport that same type of methodology to Manchester United Football Club. It it's just not gonna happen. So I'm not in, in that context, and now you're staying, I'm not at all surprised at the difficulties that he's having with United this season. Um, and and if, and if you think about also what's going on, right, is is over at Everton, I think it's infinitely easier to take somebody like Martinez and drop him into that knowledge base, right? Because you're changing, yes, the manager, and you're going to change some of his philosophical, um, let's say, proclivities in playing the game. But at the end of the day, the club is going to be able to afford the players that they can afford. You, you have, I think, a little bit easier transition of bringing somebody like Martinez into that established environment versus trying to move somebody like Moyes into United. Um, it, it, I could see it being very difficult. I know, I know Martinez is also having to use Moyes' let's say, knowledge base that he's built up over time, which isn't the same as Martinez's. I, I, just, I, see, I see it as, to your point, le- less of a surprise that Everton may finish above United in the table this year. Um, although, to go back to our original point, a lot of that might be chalked up to some random events. I think your point about uh, Moyes and his struggles at United is perfectly mirrored by Martinez and, and him doing well at Everton, and, and so, so far at least. Um, my only point being that I think what you said about Moyes and his knowledge base and what he developed at Everton, it's much more difficult to move that to United than it is to drop a new manager into that sustained knowledge base about where Everton is in the table, what type of players they're looking to recruit, what type of players they can afford, and what style of play they're using. Um, certainly Martinez will come in and change their style of play over time to something that he is he believes is is probably better suited, more he's more comfortable with, better suited for Everton at that position that they're in in the table and what they're competing for but if you're looking at just this initial season and who should be able to adapt better um, or maybe not adapt better but have more success in their new position I honestly am not that surprised that Everton's doing well Um, we may see Everton finish at above United at the end of the at the end of the season and that doesn't surprise me go back to my original point about randomness though at the beginning of the podcast you know a lot of us would argue if it's two three four five that's a couple of random events and a couple of different matches that are the difference between getting three points and one, right? So even if Everton finishes 
three or four or five points above United. It, it, it's maybe a little bit more random behavior. But to your overall point, it's not that surprising that Moyes is struggling if he had that much of a background um, and that much of a plan, let's say, visual plan uh, in place at Everton when he left. All right, so what's your next storyline? I guess I'll, I, I'd like to say this is probably my final prepared one, and we'll see where the conversation goes. But, uh, you know, w- you and I got a lot of feedback about uh, terms of data, uh, especially the license data that are being put out. And, and, you know, we got one specific example of the EPL index, which was uh, for several years trying to make a go of it, making data available to uh, their users um, that they were getting from Opta. And unfortunately, uh, just prior to the start of this season, with some of the new commercial terms that had come out, um, was no longer able to offer that service. And, and uh, as they said on Twitter, has affected uh, their site, their business model. Uh, and I think this is one of the continuing challenges. We talked about it at the beginning with Opta that it's really there's some pluses to Opta getting involved in different leagues because now we're going to get the um, some standard uh, data sets, uh, some standardization around events and how they're classified, uh, and be able to compare across leagues. But that assumes that we get access to the data, and this has been one of our consistent challenges is is in the soccer community because data is power and data is tied up in these clubs that are all individual entities. Uh, or leagues that are all competing against each other. It's not like the NFL or the NBA who has a vested interest in collecting the data and making it available because they have no competitors elsewhere in the world in their sports. So I I just wanted to pick your brain because I see this as one of the challenges that we still got in this is the evolution of these commercial terms is still making it somewhat difficult for us to get data in the public domain. And I'm sorry, I fully believe that we're going to learn the most about our sport collectively. The majority of the people who don't play the sport that aren't a member of a club, we are going to learn the most of that, most we can about that by having the power of large numbers of people looking at these data sets, not, not a smaller group. Um, this was actually one of my, uh, my storylines from the year. Um, it wasn't just the EPL index being shut down. Uh, it was also the MCFC analytics program weathering away. And I think some of that came down to data accessibility or complaints that Opto is getting from their customers about releasing that kind of data set uh, for free, even if, even if it was an old set. Um, but I, I think what people, especially people in the U.S. don't understand is that um, data rights are... Um, data rights are very, very different in Europe, uh, in European law, uh, than the American law, maybe Canadian law as well. Um, there's the issue of database rights, where the owner of a database um, not only retains rights to the data contained in that database, but all, all derived data from that database. Um, and that's... That's a level of data protection that does not exist here, uh, here in the U.S., and it makes things it makes things rather complicated if you are, um, if you are using, if you are using data that is ultimately derived from a European-based database. Um, I I think what makes data accessibility a huge challenge for for football. Uh, for soccer, if you will, is that it's different from other sports in that um, analysts in other sports were not wholly dependent on the leagues to 
uh, for access to their data. Um, you could get you could get data from a baseball game, you know, from a box score, and it explains everything that happens in the baseball game, or just about everything that happened in the baseball game. Um, you can get data. You can get data from a basketball game. You can get box score data from a basketball game, and you can still do some really. You can do. You can still do some interesting analysis. Um, obviously, it's it's limited, but you can do some interesting analysis. And with play-by-play -play data for NBA, you can do that. And the fact that the NBA is the dominant professional basketball league in the world helps. Um, even in American football and Australian rules football and the other the other football codes, you have a lot more statistical data collected in the, in the game that explains a lot of what happened. In soccer, you have very little statistical data that explains what happened in, in a positive way. There are a lot of neutral statistics in the sport. So, you know, while there are some people who have done some really, some, some really good analysis with data that is available, I think the really, the really rich analysis or the really um, groundbreaking analysis in the sport has to come from the finely grained technical tactical data. I'm not even talking about fitness data which will never be made public by, by the clubs. Um, and, and, unfor and unfortunately, the only way to um, get access to technical tactical data is through the sports data companies. And, sport and sports data companies hold that to be proprietary because they spend a lot, you know, collecting those data requires a lot of capital. Um, they want to recoup their investment. You know, they, you know, they're also operating under, um, they're also operating under the terms of, uh, of the sports organizations on whose behalf they collect data, um, and, you know, and those, you know, and those conditions are also very restrictive. I, you know, I have to mention in the in the case of EPL Index, it wasn't Opta that shut down, it was more or less, it was pretty much Football Data Co. Um, you know, they, I think they were the ones who enforced what I felt were, were really draconian, um, really draconian restrictions on the use of data and charging, you know, very large rates, uh, very large rates for it. Um, and I th from, from my understanding reading that press release, the there is only one entity that is authorized as a reseller of, of Premier League data or Football League data in the UK, and EPL Index was not it. And for that reason, that part of this, that part of the service was shut down. Um, so, so I think you're absolutely right, Zach. It's um, it's a it's a really it's a really big challenge. It's a big challenge to those of us in the analytics community because, um, you know, we have, you know, we have either two we have two recourses to dealing with it. One is to buy up to buy up data, um, and not make it public, which means you know I guess we're effectively bloggers, but we have to pay for access to it, which gets really expensive. 
Um, or we join the sports data companies and become kind of a subsidiary of those companies. And I think you're starting to see that happen. You're starting to see it happen with organizations like Opta, Prozone, Bloomberg Sports, and others hire, um, hire bloggers or have bloggers write for them. Uh, we give you access to data. You write, you know, you write on our platform. And I think um, I think that will continue. Um, but yes, data, data accessibility is a huge, huge problem, and even more so in football than any other sport. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you there. Um, I, and I I think there's some good work going on. I mean, I, I enjoy um, I enjoy Daniel Altman over at the uh, the Bloomberg Sports Outlet. But but you're right, it is going to become a model that is. Uh, I think less driven by the lay analysts like we saw in baseball and football outsiders in the football world and people like uh, um, people like that and and unfortunately it's going to be a little more centered on traditional maybe traditional media companies or analysts analytics companies at least uh, and and it, there's a higher barrier to entry is I guess what we're saying here to to get access to all the raw data that you need. I, I am going to be interested to see because there's people still scraping the data. And they're scraping the data, and they're putting it on their websites or oh. the process data on their websites. And oh, there's um, I'm aware of a group that um, that's doing analysis of referees. I think there are a group of Arsenal fans who are doing um, who are doing analysis of referees for every Premier League match. I know that they did that last season. I'm pretty sure they're continuing it this season. But um, um, if there's one area where there probably needs to be a little bit more analysis it's referee analytics and if there's one area where the football league and the premier league are most protective of analysis it's you know it's referee analysis um i, I know that i know that prozone does some some analytics on referees but that is never made public yeah and, I, I mean i can kind of understand that that's uh I understand the motivation, at least, that that gets to the integrity of the league and and can be some very sensitive matters. But I also agree with you that I think there's some there's some work that can be done there, uh, as well. Right. Um, right. I I I think I think what makes it challenging, what's it challenging for the football league and the Premier League is that, um, especially for the Premier League, is that um, their officials are probably some of the most um, heavily scrutinized uh, sports you know, sports uh, officials in the world or sports referees in the world. And every just about every other decision that is being made is heavily, heavily, um, heavily scrutinized by the fans, by the media. Um, so there's always a siege mentality uh, on the part of, on the part of the Premier League, which is understandable. I think it's ultimately caught, um, uh, it's ultimately counterproductive, um, but I think their actions have. I think because of their actions, you're seeing initiatives like, you know, this group of of Arsenal supporters, um, um, you know, with their initiative, and um, you know, I would not be surprised if they're, you know, if they're served by letters from you know from the Premier League or the FA or some other organization telling them to shut down. Um, but, you know, but I think it's a reaction to, 
it's a reaction to other actions by uh, by the league or other organizations and in the football industry of not making you know not making their data public well that was kind of the last thing i had on my i guess pre-prepared list was there anything else you had for highlights on yeah i had um i had one or two um well one to two uh, the first one was Arsenal buying the U.S.-based, a U.S.-based analytics firm. They announced it in their uh, annual general meeting, I believe in, I believe in October. Yeah. Um, it was for, uh, I think it was for 1.5 million pounds, which is a pretty good exit if you're the founders of this analytics firm. Um, to this date, I have no idea who that Alex firm is. It's not one that I'm familiar with. Um, but um, I think a lot of people saw this as important in that a Premier League club was not just buying services from an Alex firm, but they saw their work as so important that they effectively did an acqui hire. You know, they bought the they bought the firm's assets and brought them inside the organization to do analysis exclusively for them. And um, that's, you know, I've heard of examples of Major League Baseball teams doing that um, for independent analytics firms in baseball. I've heard of NBA teams doing that, but usually their practice is to buy independent analysts. I would say buy. They hire independent analysts and ask them to take their blogs down. Um, so you know you basically don't hear from them again. Um, so it, it, it's it, it was interesting to see Arsenal do that. Will other clubs in the Premier League do that? I don't know. Um, but it, it it was interesting to see. We'll see if it's we'll see if it's a trend. Um, who knows? Maybe. Maybe they're part of the reason why Arsenal is in first place. Well, they're currently in second place as we're doing this, but chances are really good they'll be in first place by by Monday night. Um, but yeah, it was it, it was it was a really interesting story in that um, in that it gave the UK press a reason to talk about analytics in the sport for a while. Well, as a as a gunner myself, I uh, or as, as a gunner, I. I completely uh, advocate them buying team buying these uh, resources and getting better um uh, analytics uh, resources in house i mean uh to, to to your point the wider point i mean not just the people who are fans of arsenal um certainly uh, i'd be interested to see if it's paid any dividends so far maybe they were using them um outside before they acquired them as a test run to see if their 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 analytics were worth anything but uh it certainly is a big testament to say hey we're going to actually outlay uh, over a million pounds for effectively bringing in, in sourcing this service, essentially. Right. And my last storyline of the year was um, the apparent lack of progress in the analytics movement. And I think it manifested itself a number of ways. One was the soccer analytics panel and the fallout from that. Um, a few weeks after that, there was a there was a sports analytics summit in London, and Chris Anderson was one of the featured speakers. And he talked about the apparent sense of stagnation in the analytics field and how it's in danger of becoming a fad. 
Um, and I think throughout the year, there's, I think throughout the year, there was a conversation in the analytics community. I think there was an apparent sense that yes, things have stagnated. You're trying to figure out how to, you know, how to break through that stagnation and, and enable some, not necessarily fresh ideas, but, um, but greater, a greater amount of progress in the amount of analytics work that's being done. And I think a lot of it comes down to lack of access to data or a huge amount comes down to lack of access to data. Um, and also a lack of, of sophistication of some of the analytics um, that have been done. Um, so I think um, the effort of Prozone in partnering with um, in partnering with University in Liverpool to establish um, an Alex Center at um, at Liverpool John Moores University um, was a really big event. I think um, the Alex Forum that Opta organized toward the end of last year um, they selected nine finalists who will present uh, within a month or two uh, their findings. I think that's another. That's another attempt to address this uh, this sense of stagnation in the field. Um, you know, we'll see we'll see if those initiatives bear fruit. I think in the case of Opta, um, you know, the Alex form will be interesting in terms of the findings. Um, um, I'm slightly skeptical about it, not not because I wasn't accepted for it, but more more because you know, they made their decision and they've essentially given the nine finalists about two months to get, you know, to get their work done uh, before it's presented. And I'm not sure that's enough time unless they have, unless researchers have a framework of what they want to do and everything was ready to go. And I'm not so sure about that. Um, Prozone, I think that initiative is longer term, but we'll see, you know, we'll see if, um, um, we'll see if it bears any fruit. And I think we might know that from um, additional products or features in existing products that Prozone, that Prozone turns out. Um, but I, I would say that the, if the apparent lack of progress um, is, is my last storyline of, of 2013. Um, but I think you know, a number of people within the community have been, have been searching for ways to um, have been searching for ways to address that. Zach. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think when we look at this, um, I mean, you see this as well with Sloan. Uh, I'm a little sad about how few papers on the sport of soccer have made it through the Sloan research paper contest. Um, I'm, I'm appreciative of, of Opta trying to put something like a research paper um, and presentation uh, uh, conference together because I think that's what, what we need. We need something interim between the clubs and some of the high-level public stuff that you might see on TV or in, um, let's say, uh, less uh, less academic, less journalistic um print media 
you know, you're going to have that. We can get that covered. A lot of us bloggers have stuff that we can talk about at a high level. But what what you're really hitting on is where's the guts of the research papers, the actual advancement of our of our maybe still public understanding of the game, but a, a more analytical, a, a truly analytical, not just uh, stats, but an, uh, analytics as a predictive tool or um, some type of explanatory tool. Where and that, I guess I guess the question is where is the science in in quotes because you know. I guess statistics could be classified to that, but where's the science of, you know, of this field? Right. And, and I think that's, what's lacking. I mean, I think that's exactly what people are saying is that there's, um, there probably needs to be a bigger emphasis on scientific rigor, um, when, when discussing some of these topics or when trying to advance the field, um, in, in a printed form is, is actually having some, maybe, you know, getting more, Articles submitted to peer-reviewed journals and things like that as well um, yep. would be good. Right, and, and I think to I think in that vein, I've you know, I've seen very few articles on on soccer published in the uh, Journal of Quantitative Analysis in Sports, which is the um, which is the preeminent journal on on sports analytics in a technical sense. I, I had an article published there a few years ago. Um, I've seen some other articles that you know, have varying degrees of quality that were published there um, dealing, with, uh, dealing with soccer. But I think there were too many articles that deal with you know, predicting, you know, you know, predicting some goal distribution of Goal distributions of elite players are looking at, you know, looking at distance run and World Cups or European Championships and things like that as if they actually mean anything. Um, it's just the the level of sophistication even in papers in those journals is pathetic, and I think that we, and I'm pointing to myself in the Alex community, really need to raise our game and. Look at the example that that basketball set down. Look at the example that you know baseball and Australian rules football and other sports have set down in making advances on providing a framework of the data that that we receive, that they receive, and coming up with some really groundbreaking. Uh, research on understanding how these player events impact the ultimate result or and impact team performance and ask some really perceptive questions. Um, so I, I really I really hope that um, that this uh, analytics form of Opta um, makes some progress toward that and I hope that the research center that Prozen has set up with Liverpool John Moores University uh, makes progress toward that. And I guess I would share that. Maybe that's uh, one of the hopeful outlooks for 2014 is is to uh, uh, see that bear some fruit then. Okay. So turning to 2014, you know, obviously this year is going to be dominated by the World Cup. But uh, what do you think will be some of the developments in football analytics? Oh, man. Um, I hate making predictions. Uh, I hate predictions, I hate, I hate general, not... I predictions too. <laughs> but it wouldn't... It wouldn't be an analytics discussion without trying to do some prognostication. So, um, I, I, I mean, I think I, I really do think what I'm seeing um, out of 
a couple different people or groups related to, uh, I think passes um, are going to be a big deal. So I've seen a lot on shots, and I mentioned this before about shot location, um, but I'm just seeing people scratch the surface of passes because shots have been recorded for so well for so long, you can get them pretty easily now. For you to manually record those if you want to do it yourself. Um, passing is a different thing, and I think passing is one of those that's really hard to quantify. It takes a lot of data. Um, there's a few people that I know of that are kind of starting to look at that, and my hope is as much as we learned about shot location data in the public domain this year, uh, we learn just as much, if not more, about passing because it's really setting up that, that, that player to take a shot even if they don't take it because they happen to be gun shy on pulling, you know, pulling the trigger on that shot, it's getting players that know how to put um, put other players in good positions. Shots that I think are so key, and I, and I'll and I'll continue to say this: you look at Mesut Ozil, and, and it's not just because he's playing for Arsenal now, <laughs> but you look at somebody like Mesut Ozil and. My hope is in 2014 that we continue to explore that, and and I think there's some people on the verge of being able to get us concrete visual representations of large data sets on that that might help shove us forward this year. Uh, I, in a paper that got her actually, um, you know, her foot in the door at least with stat DNA. Um, those kinds of analyses, uh, non-shooting players, I think, will uh, b play a bigger role in 2014. So that's my one, my, my one bold prediction, other than uh, Alex Ferguson's retirement also disrupting a lot of models this year. Yeah. Um, gosh, I haven't, haven't really thought too much about um, development in football analytics this year. I would, I would say, it, um, I guess, looking at my own work, I think... Um, Tempo is going to be um, studied a lot more. Um, I guess the the effective value of players, um, not just within a game, but effect, I think I think you might see the start of studies of the effectiveness of positions uh, compared to other not necessarily positions, but also formations compared to others. Uh, the effectiveness of certain strategies. Um, I don't think that these... I think that um, developments of football analytics will be independent of what happens at the World Cup because it's such a, it's such a short tournament. Um, it's a different kind of tournament, and I think predicting, predicting player performance over you know, seven games is just, is just crazy. Um, but I do think that there will be, and I think it's already happening, I think there will be a lot of preparation, I think there will be some more preparation by, by teams, um, by teams leading up to the World Cup. I think, I would like to think that more teams took a look at what Germany did in, in their preparation for the World Cup as far as extensive analysis of every player. Um, of every player of the other 31 finalists. Um, obviously, not every team in the tournament can afford that, can afford to do that. 
but I will be paying special attention to teams who we know can afford to do that kind of study and don't do that. And I think you and I can probably think of some examples of, of countries <laughs> that fall in that category. Um, um, and of course, I think the... I think the continuing development in football analytics will be availability of data. And I don't think that has uh, finished playing itself out yet, not even by a long shot. And I, I think there will be, there will continue to be complaints about data accessibility um, in the analytics community. Um, I, I think you'll see a lot more, I think you'll start to see a lot more consolidation. Um, I know there, there's been, you know, massive blossoming of uh, startup companies forming in this space, and it usually takes about two years before they realize that um, developing a business model in in soccer analytics is extremely difficult. And then you have the decision of what do you do? Are you just the data supplier, or are you doing are you doing hardcore analysis? If you're doing the former. You're not going to be in business for very long. If you're doing the latter, you might as well be a blogger and work collectively with, uh, you know, pool your resources with other people. Um, so, um, so I think those are those will be some of the developments that, that I'm looking for in addition to uh, whatever comes out of the Opta uh, Analytics Forum and the Prozone Partnership. Yeah, I'm interested to see what comes out of there. I'm um, to your point. I think there's, I think the looking at the input to the World Cup, how people prepare for their groups, the teams they're going to face in their groups, and then who they might face in the, the knockout phase of the tournament, uh, will be interesting to see who who does some preparation, who doesn't. Um, I'm sure there'll be no shortage of uh, attempted analysis afterwards by numbers, but to your point, the the, the sample sizes are so small that uh, ex post facto type analysis is is, is troublesome however my wife who is a tangential fan of the game she loves american football loves college basketball i think uh you know after being harassed in 2010 by the fact that uh, paul the octopus could pick all those games correctly i'm pr i'm personally curious as to what animal is going to do so well <laughs> in 2014 <laughs> Because my wife never let me never let me live down the fact that an octopus could pick the, the games correctly, apparently. So, yeah, I, I think they'll pick a piranha. <laughs> <laughs> Just keeping with the Brazilian, uh, keeping with the Brazilian theme. <laughs> well, right. Howard, it's it's been a great uh, it's been a great discussion. I had a lot of fun in 2013. I don't know what 2014 is going to hold for me personally. I want to keep writing. Um, I want to keep the field uh, growing. I want to see the field keep growing um, with a, a number of people like yourself that I know are, are trying to do really good uh, good work in the analytics side. So um, 2013 was a good year. Uh, there was some good positive stuff and some, some challenges, and there will continue to be. But um, I'm overall help, hopeful for 2014 as the field continues to progress. Me too. Um... Yeah, last week was the fifth anniversary of Soccer Metrics, and I've been, I've been thinking a lot about um, where, uh, where the field has been, where the movement has been since I, since I uh, hitched on. Um, it, it's it's been a fun ride, and um, you know there were some 
there's some changes, some difficulties, um, obviously in 2013. But you know, this is a World Cup year, and um, we're we're really excited to, um, you know, to do some research related to the World Cup. But I also want to emphasize that you know, work at Soccer Metrics is independent of you know World Cups and regional championships and things like that. Um, we're all about um, understanding the game better in you know a different way, hopefully a more fundamental way. Um, so that that's my hope for 2014. So um, last question: Where can people follow you online? Well, I have uh, I, I'm on Twitter, uh, and some it, my my company name is way too long, so I have a, a, a Twitter handle that's maybe too complex. Uh, at the underscore number underscore game. Uh, so if you don't know what underscore is, that's the shift and the minus sign on your computer keyboard. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I've got, uh, you can look up a beautiful numbers game on Facebook. Uh, I'm at Forbes. I have my own personal blog that I started four years ago when I started this journey that I'm going to try and keep more up to date this year. That's one of my, uh, one of my goals for my company because uh, I can't always publish everything uh, to the Forbes outlet. So, uh, but I think the consistent outlet you can find me on is, is Twitter. Uh, and if you get on there, you can interact with me at any point, ask me questions that anybody may have. And who knows, maybe, uh, one of your questions ends up as analysis that I do someplace. And I always do the best job of trying to attribute, uh, people who encourage, uh, encourage my, uh, work. So if you do suggest something that ends up on my blog, you may get your name mentioned. So, uh, that's, uh, that's where I'll be in 2014. All right, well, that's going to do it for our time here. My guest for this episode of the Soccer Matrix podcast has been Zach Slayton. Zach, thank you so much for joining me, and all the best for 2014. You too, Howard. Thank you very much. It's been a blast. This is Howard Hamilton of Soccer Matrix Research. Thanks for listening to the Soccer Matrix podcast. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Soccer Metrics podcast. The Soccer Metrics Podcast is available for free from iTunes, so you can listen to it again and again. To find the notes for this edition and learn more about our research, services, and other resources, visit the site at SoccerMetrics.net. You can also find us on Twitter, at SoccerMetrics. So until next time, this has been another edition of the Soccer Metrics Podcast.